Ecclesiastes wanted to drive home to us is that um, life under the sun without Jesus is meaningless, but life under the sun with Jesus is meaningful. And um, kind of a multi-centered, not really complicated main idea, but follow it with me. I want you to see this as we wrap up Ecclesiastes. What Solomon is saying to us is if there's no God, then there's no judge. If there's no judge, there'll be no final judgment. And if there's no final judgment, there's no ultimate meaning in life. And you can take one of two stances. Eat, marry, eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow you'll die. In other words, get everything you can out of this because this is it. Or you can say, this isn't even real, and there's something else that's real somewhere. What the gospel teaches us is that there is something else somewhere, and this is real. And this reality matters because we'll face the someone that is somewhere. So, I would say, there is a God, and he's a judge. He is judge. He'll bring every thought, word, and deed into final view at the final judgment. And everything in life, therefore, is filled with meaning. Because there's a judge, and because he'll bring every thought, word, and deed into judgment, life is very meaningful. Every word is very meaningful. Every deed is very meaningful. And that's the contention of Ecclesiastes. Maybe I should read the passage and pray and we go home. Because that's the truth. Everything is meaningful. You know what else I'll tell you? You probably already knew it. You maybe hadn't thought about it like this. Every generation is frustrated. Did you know that? I bet you in this room we can find people who, who've kind of come knuckle to knuckle with your parents, with the system around you, with teachers, with authorities. Maybe you didn't do anything, but you thought a lot. Guess what? Your, your, your dads and moms also went knuckle to knuckle with their moms and dads. And your grandparents went knuckle to knuckle with their grandparents. Every generation is frustrated. I think about my own family lineage. My mom is one of 12. Her parents are, her parents are literally old enough to be uh, my other set of grandparents' parents. My, my mom was at the end of that. Her mom and dad were, were young people during World War. They were teenagers. During World War I and Spanish flu, my other set of grandparents, they, they grew up in the Great Depression, World War II. My parents grew up in the turbulent 60s and 70s. They were teenagers in the late 50s, early 60s. I grew up in the 70s and 80s where we had to endure things like disco and uh, uh, infinite amounts of hairspray. That's what ruined the entire environment was 80s hair. Um, you know what, 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 really, what really was sobering to me is we used to go into the hallways. and Carson, like somebody your age, this will blow your mind. It's, it's really We'd go into the hallways and do nuclear war drills. You know, y'all did like what, fire drills, tornado drills? We would do nuclear war drills. And then I joined the Army, and I was an NBC specialist, which means nuclear, biological, chemical. Uh, going into the hallway and balling up in a knot will not help you at all for nuclear war. But we grew up in that specter. You know, Michael pulled up an old wrestling video a few minutes ago, and one of the good guys in the scene was supposed to be this Soviet Union guy. And I said, man, when I was a teenager, I couldn't pull for that guy. Now, look at, look at my, my kids are growing up. They have never not known our nation to be at war. They have no memories where this nation wasn't at war. Afghanistan, Iraq, other conflicts. They've never known a time where there wasn't political turmoil. And then, you know, like mayonnaise on a good sandwich, let's just throw in COVID-19 in 2020, right? Every generation has frustration. 
I could talk about this all day. But I decided, I found, uh, I, I didn't watch much uh, this stuff growing up, but my family used to watch this show. And so uh, I remember these two guys would give speeches. I wanted to find this clip from this show right here. And uh, this is 51 or two years old, six, 1968, 1969. I want us to just take a few minutes and watch this clip and tell me, isn't it modern? It's modern. Shannon? You just don't understand. Maybe we do, son. Don't think you have a corner on all of virtue vision in the country or that everybody else is fat and selfish and you're the first generation to come along that's felt dissatisfied. They all have, you know, about different things and most of them didn't have the same opportunity and freedoms that you do. Let's talk poverty. Most places in the world, that's not a problem. It's a way of life. And rights, they're liable to give you a blank stare because they may not know what you're talking about. The fact is more people are living better right here than anywhere else ever before in history. So don't expect us to roll over and play dead when you say you're dissatisfied. It's not perfect, but it's a great deal better than when we grew up. A hundred men standing in the street hoping for one job, selling apples on the street corner. That's one of the things we were dissatisfied about, and you don't see that much anymore. You're taller, stronger, healthier, better educated, and you live longer than the last generation. And we don't think that's altogether bad. You've probably never seen a quarantine sign in your neighbor's door. Diphtheria, scarlet fever, whooping cough. Probably none of your classmates are crippled with polio. You don't see many mastoid scars anymore. We've done quite a bit of fighting all around the world. Whether you think it was moral or not, a lot of people are free today to make their own mistakes because of it. And that may just include you. I don't know. Maybe part of it's the fact that you're in a hurry. You've grown up on instant orange juice. Flip a dial, instant entertainment. Dial seven digits, instant communication. Turn a key, push a pedal, instant transportation. Flash a card, instant money. Shove in a problem, push a few buttons, instant answers. But some problems you can't get quick answers to no matter how much you want them. We took a little boy into Central Receiving Hospital yesterday. He was four years old. He weighs eight and a half pounds. His parents just haven't bothered to feed him. Now, give me a fast answer to that one. One that'll stop that from ever happening again. And if you can't settle that one, what about the 55,000 Americans who will die on the highways this year? That's nearly six or seven times the number that'll get killed in Vietnam. Why aren't you up in arms about that? Or is dying in a car somehow moral? Tell me how to wipe out prejudice. I'll settle for just the prejudices you have inside yourselves. Show me how to get rid of the unlimited capacity for human beings to make themselves believe that they're somehow right and justified in stealing from somebody or hurting somebody. And you'll just about put this place here out of business. I don't think that we're telling you to lose your ideals or your sense of outrage. They're the only way things ever get done. And there's a lot that still needs doing. And we hope you'll tackle it. You don't have to do anything dramatic like trying to come up with a better country. You can find enough to keep you busy right here. While you're at it, don't break things up in the name of progress or crack a placard stick over somebody's head to help him see the light. Be careful of his rights, because your property and your person and your rights aren't any better than his. And next time, you may be the one to get it. We remember a man who killed six million people and called it social improvement. So hang in. Don't try to build a new country. Make the old one work. It has for over 400 years. And by the world's standards, that's hardly more than yesterday. Feels like we could have that speech today, doesn't it? It's relevant, isn't it? Every generation's frustrated. Every generation. One of my favorite things he said in the whole thing was, don't lose your ideals or sense of outrage. I would say to every generation, don't lose your ideals or sense of outrage. We need them. We need to get mad about some stuff and do something about things. But we need to get mad about the right stuff. 
and do the right thing. The book of Ecclesiastes is screaming out to us to see that, to, to show us that life really does matter. And your life matters and our decisions matter. And what we believe and how we behave, it's significant. It's significant because we'll stand before the living God over all these things. Tonight, I want to wrap up Ecclesiastes with five, I pray, quick ideas. If you'll join with me one last time and read the last few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse number 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Father, thank you for a chance to open your word. Now, God, we humbly ask you to open your word to us. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts that become fixed on Jesus. In Christ I pray, amen. Five quick thoughts. Thought number one, are you stupid or something? That's harsh language. It's not a word you want to hear coming out of a kid's mouth. But I got to tell you, I'm not endorsing it, but this is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Forrest Gump, I love it. I bought it. I, I don't know how many times I've watched it. I just love it. And what my favorite thing about it actually is, is Forrest Gump. It's the guy. He would be, I would be friends with that guy. I like him. But if you ever really paid attention to the movie, every time Forrest is doing something that's really good, somebody thinks he's dumb or crazy or stupid. When he gets on the bus and he introduces himself to Jenny and immediately falls in love with her, no better name than Jenny. She says, are you stupid or something? You know why she thought that? Because he introduced himself and acted with manners. And that threw her off. When his friend Bubba died in Vietnam and he had made an agreement with Bubba to have a shrimp business, a shrimp boat together, he went home and used the money from his Flexolite ping pong paddle and he bought a boat and some Dr. Peppers. That's important. And when he gave the man the, the last bit of money he had for bait or nets or something like that, do you remember the man was standing on the dock and he says, are you stupid or something? Mama, mama says stupid. He is stupid, duh. Nobody could imagine that he would keep his word to his dead friend, but it made sense to Forrest Gump. Why? Because he had given his word. My granddaddy used to say, your word is all you have, and it's really who you are. Or how about when he got rich? One of my favorite parts of the movie is they, they – he shows him opening the mail, and it's a letter from Apple Computer. But the way he describes it is, Lieutenant Dan invested our money in fruit or something, and he says, we don't have to worry about money anymore. Well, that's just one more thing. And then he takes half of the riches he's earned and gives it to Bubba's mama. You remember what she says? Are you crazy or something? When he did something noble and right in a broken world, it seems crazy. Maybe another way to look at this is to say, I want a life that makes sense to God. Somebody say amen. 
My life don't have to make sense to everybody around me. If it makes sense to God, it makes sense. What the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is in this world of futility, in this very broken world, in this very broken world, you can either live and try to absorb all of this brokenness and enjoy all of this brokenness, or you can understand that you don't even know how to enjoy it without God. You have no hope of enjoying it without God. And whatever you do with it, you're going to answer to God. There's so many things that if we take up the obedience of walking with God, it will seem strange to the world. Y'all have people in your family that thinks it's crazy that you try to walk into this room every single week. They think it's crazy. You, have, you work with people that if you told them that you were committed to tithing, they would say, that's lunatic. If somebody cussed you out and you took the high road and turned the other cheek and didn't cuss them back, somebody would come along and say, well, if they had done that to me, I would do such and such. The life, the life of walking with God is peculiar in a broken world. Very peculiar. But that's what God calls us to. I want a life that makes sense to God. What verse 9 is telling us is that God wants to give us the knowledge of walking with him in this world, and that knowledge will bring a logical clarity to life that we won't have without him. It's that simple. We won't have that logical clarity. The question is, is are we open and teachable? Are we willing for God to change our minds, change our lives, set us on a new course? Maybe I should say it like this. Are you open and teachable? Maybe if I call names. Mary, are you open and teachable? Tony? Are you open and teachable? Kylie, are you open and teachable? Rebecca? I only picked her because she was looking over at all y'all. Are you open and teachable? Christina, are you open and teachable? This is what Ecclesiastes is telling us. If you think you got it all together, then you're going to run up against something that's going to show you that you don't have it all together. And what the futility is going to reveal to you is that you have an idol you're worshiping or you have a God you're trusting. And Ecclesiastes is showing us that all the futility is meant to drive us to God. Are we open and teachable? Make your life count. Don't trifle with God. No, we all face death. And every single one of us will stand in front of God. As John Piper would eloquently say, don't waste your life. In Christ, it's all meaningful. I want my life to make sense to God, even if it don't make sense to anybody else. Secondly, through the treasury of riddles and tensions and plain spoken counsel, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us life can be full of delight. Go back and look at verse 9 and look at verse 10. The preacher also taught the people knowledge. But what was the goal of teaching the people knowledge? He wanted them, as verse 10 tells us, to find words of delight. I'm going to tell you one of these dumb things that only some of y'all will get how dumb it is. The rest of you have to trust me, this is really dumb. So I was hooking up this heater to a propane tank, and I could not find an adjustable wrench. I didn't have one with me. But what I did have was a pipe wrench. had a pipe wrench. And uh, I adjusted as close as I could to fit on this brass fitting, and I tightened that that nut up. I just tightened it up. 
Now, if you're, if you're somebody who's ever worked with tools, you know this is a big no-no. Brass is soft, a pipe wrench has teeth on it. What I did was make it work, but do you know what? It won't work long term. What it'll do is it'll eventually tear that brass fitting all the pieces. Any guy that's ever hooked up a propane tank or any lady, pardon me for being sexist, but I meant to, because ladies never get the grill ready. <clears throat> Matt, you touched, ain't you? I could tell. You guys know you don't put a pipe wrench on a brass fitting. But most of us are finding life like that. We're making things work that are not long-term ideal. And the challenge that God puts before us is not only to find something to make it work, but find something that's long-term ideal. That's what the writer is getting at. He wants you to discover there's a pathway of life that's not destructive in the course of living it. There's a pathway of life that's delightful in the way you live it. And we'll only discover that as we walk with God. The scriptures are full of so many of these wonderful proverbs. I'm going to pick one of my favorites. Ecclesiastes 7, 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? There's this guy named Thomas Boston. He wrote an entire book on this verse. Thomas Boston had ten kids. Six of them died somewhere between a few days after being born and two years old. I think it was after the death of child number four, he began searching the scriptures. Because he, he felt like, man, this is crazy. I keep having kids. Kids keep passing away. Um, if you've ever lost one kid and you know that heartbreak, imagine six. Imagine six. One of my relatives lost six kids, and I asked him about it one time. They, they lost six and had one. And, uh, and I said, you know, just how did you find the strength? They said, I did until I didn't. In other words, they, they finally quit trying. They found it until they didn't. Thomas Boston went searching the scriptures, and he wound up at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Thomas Boston wrote a book, The Crook in the Lot, The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God in the Afflictions of Men Displayed. Amber asked me the other day about a book that presents the gospel in the face of loss, and I wanted to tell her this when I mentioned it. I was like, but it's written so many long ago, it's hard to read, right? Great book. What's Thomas Boston's point? He could not figure out why he was facing so much heartache. So he began to seek the face of God, and this is what he discovered, that God was using the heartache to make him seek the face of God. Some of us, some of us face heartache, and we just want it to go away. What God wants us to see is that it's futile. It's futile to face this life without him. I want to give you guys a prescription before I move on. And I'll move quickly before, through the last three points. I know you're getting nervous. Somebody's already looked at their watch and said, he's only on two and he said five. I caught that. I want to give you guys a pill. You ready? Anybody already on medicine? No, don't confess to that. I'm going to give you guys a pill. It's going to help you out. But let me tell you the chemical composition of the pill, okay? So you'll know how to make it yourself. You ready? This is called my Delight Pursuit Prescription. If you want to pursue delight, and that's what the preacher's goal is for you, take this prescription. Part one of this pill, slow down. Slow down. Just slow down. The example I always use is how you can get a, a, a meal for a family of six at the average drive-thru in three minutes and 43 seconds, and sometimes that's still not fast enough. 
we click and we run. And, uh, you know, we'll spend hours watching a show because we want to rush through to the end of it. What do they call that when you, when you watch a show? Huh? Binge. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't think of it. We'll binge watch it because we can't, we can't even wait for it. We were designed at more of a, like a farm pace, you know, the way, you, the way a farm works. There's seasons, and you plant something, and you tend it, and you wait for it to grow, and you, and you take fruit from it, and you enjoy it. Slow down. You don't have to play this game. This whole rushing around at breakneck speed, it's a relatively new invention of the devil. Resist it. Second part of this peel. Ponder more. Let's do that. Think about things longer. Especially think about them before you say anything. Practice pondering. Think about things for a long time. Roll them around in your brain. A proverb is supposed to be somewhat of a riddle, a mystery. It's meant to make you think. The, the, the preacher here says, listen, here's the deal. I have arranged these in, with great care, which is what I do with everything. I arrange everything with great care. There she is over there. Um, he says, I've taken these proverbs and I've put them together. I want you to think about life. I want you to search for meaning. I want you to figure out what's futile. I want you to see me, seek me. Guys, learn to ponder things. Learn to ponder things. Also, learn to enjoy the moment. It's enough people in this room that I know it's somebody here. I don't even know who it is. Some of y'all live for the weekend. You hate your job. You hate the weekday. You just endure it until you can get to the weekend. You know what you do when you do that? You blow five days. So, uh, if you know me at all, you know I love Mr. Rogers. It's another one of those movies I bought. I bought the one where Tom Hanks stars as Mr. Rogers. I've watched it three times. I love it. One of my favorite parts in the movie is when he's sitting in a restaurant with this reporter and he tells him to sit quiet for a moment and think about all the people in life who've, who've helped him. First time I saw that, uh, I was just watching the movie, waiting for the next thing to happen. The next time I saw the movie, I was thinking about the reporter. The third time I watched the movie, I took that time of silence to think about all the people who helped me. And I'm going to tell you, water came out of my face. So you know what we're going to do? Anybody want to guess? We're going to ponder. We're going to enjoy this moment. I'm going to time you guys. We're going to find a one minute of silence together. I've got three challenges. You pick yours. Think for a minute about things you think are beautiful. Think about for a minute about people in your life that you know loves you. Think for a minute about what it's meant for you, not for all of us, but specifically what it's meant for you to walk with Jesus. Three choices. Think about something beautiful. Think about people that you know loves you. Or think about what Jesus has meant to you. I'm going to give you a minute. It's going to be awkward. Let's enjoy the moment. Go.
hard, ain't it? It's kind of hard to be quiet. Make room for God to say something to you. Learn to enjoy the moment. Slow down. Ponder. Enjoy the moment. Apply the word. Look for how God wants the word to work in your life. And remember eternity. Remember two things about eternity. Everything's going to come under the judgment of God. But all, and, and, you know, that feels sort of convicting and, and bracing. But also remember this. If you're hidden in Christ, he's working all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. Your life, believer, your life is going somewhere. You're, it's going somewhere. In Christ, you're going to be made to be like Christ. This is the delight pursuit prescription. And if you're slick, you've already noticed that it spells, it's an acrostic. You might notice it. Fear. This is how you live a very pointed, intentional life where you don't let moments slip by because you're waiting for something else down the road. Learn to walk with Jesus right now. This is the heart of abiding right here. Slow down. Ponder more. Enjoy the moment. Apply the word. And definitely remember eternity. Thirdly, Ecclesiastes is a goad to keep fearful, rebellious, halting sheep moving. What, what he's saying in verse 11 is the words of wise are like goads. Poke, 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 poke. The words of the wise are like goads, but they're also like nails. If it ever gets, if a word of wisdom ever gets fixed in your spirit, it'll come up over and over and over again. It'll direct you, it'll guide you, it'll slow you down, it'll speed you up. That word of wisdom will matter to you. If we were under normal circumstances, having our normal sorts of services that we have at East Rock, I'd stop right now and I'd ask people to stand up and share words of wisdom that have stuck with them over the years. So many have stuck with me. I'll tell you one of them that changed my life. I don't know, it was seventh or eighth grade, you had to read um, The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Anybody remember that? And uh, I read the poem. The poem was by Robert Frost. I'd never heard of the poem until I read the book, Nature's First Green is Gold. And it dawned on me that there's things and seasons that are temporary. Don't miss, don't miss the golden things. And I started looking for them. It changed my life. Literally, a, a, a poem in a school assignment changed my life. I was like, this is brilliant. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, and Eden sank to grief. Dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. Plus, guys, girls love poetry. It was awesome that I remembered that poem. I wrote it on the wall of the bathroom at the rink-a-dink. I signed Robert Frost. If they wanted to get somebody in trouble for it, call him. He was dead. Guys, gals, there's this beauty in life that if we go rushing by, we miss it. But there's also, there's also this fearfulness and rebellion in life that when we fall into those ruts, we miss out on the beauty that way too. Rushing, rebelling, fearing, failing. God wants this wisdom to come to us and be a sort of goad. Look at this picture right here. This, this thing scares me. Not, not that. That was, that was, go back right there. This, uh, this is an ode to my wife. She told me when her and her brother were growing up, she was that, that big sister who would put her finger in her brother's face and go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. 
you know, uh, that doesn't bother me, but apparently it bothers Scott, right? Yeah, you're a bad big sister. Anyway, so check out this elephant goad. <laughs> I just typed in goad in Google Images. That was the first one that came up. And I'm like, how do you make something that big move? You poke it coming and going. That's what you do. But we think of the shepherd having a rod and a staff. It's easy to see that image of him popping a sheep's leg with a rod or guiding the herd with a staff. But have you ever thought about the wisdom of the one shepherd is to be a goad poking and prodding you to move forward in your faith, move forward in life, move forward in purpose? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is to us. It's a goad. Not only is it a goad, it's, it's nails firmly fixed. If it ever gets in you, it sticks. It's like he's saying, if this kind of thinking ever gets into you, if you ever realize that there's futility of walking around without God, and if you ever see that it's a delight to walk with God, it'll stick. If it gets in, know who it comes from. It comes from the one shepherd. It comes from God. Fourthly and quickly, Beware of information overload without fatherly oversight. Look at verse 12. He says again there, my son, beware of anything beyond these. In other words, beware of anything beyond wisdom, beyond good goading wisdom. Beware of that. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is the weariness of the flesh. Somebody who hates to read might say, amen, right? Carson's like, yeah, a lot of books is a weariness. If your daddy was here, he would, wouldn't he? Yeah. Oh, he's, hey, Michael. It's weirdness, right, Michael? But that's not what he means. He's not meaning, he's not saying, you know, don't study or don't study so much. That's not what it means. It means don't let the excuse that you don't have all the answers cause you to not obey God. And I can't tell you, as a pastor, as someone who tries to faithfully witness the gospel, I can't tell you how many people I run into who just because they don't have all the answers they won't act on what answers they do have. It's dangerous. So one of my, I love, one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. I mean, I absolutely love C.S. Lewis. I wanted to just stop and read this whole chapter. So that I'm doing this excerpt, you know, you know. Check this out. This is two voices, so I put them in two colors. The white voice is uh, supposed to be like the voice of the Holy Spirit, and then the, the yellow voice is one of these, these academic types. Let me just share this with y'all. Very well, said the other, as if changing his plan. Will you believe in me? You do know that's what the Holy Spirit is always doing. He's always asking, will you believe in Jesus? Will you believe on the Father? And look at what the academic says. In what sense? The Spirit says, will you come with me to the mountain? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. But will you come? The academic, well, that is a plan. I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. I should want to guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness and a scope for the talents that God has given me and an atmosphere of free inquiry. In short, all that one means by civilization and our, the spiritual life. No, said the, the, the character that represents the Holy Spirit. No, said the other. I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you to the land not of questions but of answers. 
and you shall see the face of God. Anybody want to guess what this academic did with that invitation? He turned it down and walked away. He wanted to be at a place where he was significant. He was invited, being invited to a place where only God was significant. What does he miss? I asked that question in the first service, and Andrew immediately says, the mountains, the high country. He misses it. You know what else he misses? The face of God. What Ecclesiastes is saying to us is no matter how many questions you have, you're going to have more questions. No matter how many questions you have, you're going to have more questions. Will you trust God in what you already know? Will you believe God and obey him where you already meet him? And last but not least, in the end, it will have mattered how we have lived and what we have believed. Do y'all believe that today? It'll matter. A lot of movie mentions, because I, I just see people trying to bring out beautiful ideas in movies and music all the time. But in Schindler's List, anybody seen Schindler's List? Very sad. Another one I'm not recommending. You know, it's a brutal movie on the emotions. Very sad. But at one point, the guy who has been sort of taking advantage of these, this, this concentration camp slave labor, he kind of sees the light. And he says, I got to stop, you know, I got to stop doing this. He starts rescuing people. They move their entire operations and... They, they quit making pots and pans, and they start making artillery shells, but none of their artillery shells work. And uh, his workers say, look, we're getting complaints from the munitions board. He says, I tell you, if one of these shells, if one of these shells explodes, you're going to have to answer to me. He didn't want to produce destruction. And he was willing to answer for his unwillingness to produce destruction. Are we willing to answer for our unwillingness to produce goodness? The writer of Ecclesiastes says this, the end of the matter is simple. We've, we've heard all the arguments. What it boils down to is this, fear God and keep his commandments. That means be humble and be action-oriented. Be obedience-oriented. Why? Because God will bring every deed into judgment. Our life is meaningful with Jesus. Our Savior entered this reality to teach us how to enjoy it and to deliver us from it. He fully entered the vanity of this world and suffered at the hands of futility. He took the judgment we deserve by dying on the cross. They buried him because he really died. And on the third day, on the third day he rose, bringing life out of the grave. Soon, he will return. And this time, not to come humbly human to open the doors of grace, but to appear only as glorious God to, to usher in the time of justice and judgment. All the secrets of man will be brought into judgment. And as Acts 17.31 says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man. Do you guys see what this verse says the standard is? How's he going to judge everybody? By Jesus. You look at your life, are you just like Jesus? I'm not. I'm not even remotely close. And if I start trying to be like him, it's an exhausting cycle of failure. You know why Jesus says to us, come unto me all you who are weary, laden, weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest? Because he knows 
that none of us are righteous. All of us have strayed. We're all like dirty rags. He says, so you know what? I'm going to be your life laundry. You come hide in me, and I'll keep you in wash cycle until the day I present you clean in front of my Father. He knows we can't do this on our own. He knows we can't enjoy this on our own. And he knows we cannot even endure judgment on our own. We can't. I can't even endure this life on my own. I just can't. I'm willing to confess that. Are you? This futility has shown me how much I need Jesus. And that Jesus has shown me how much of a delight life can be in walking with him. I want to see my brothers and sisters make every moment count. Every moment is meaningful in Jesus. It's only wasted if we waste it. Do you know him today? Has anything been interrupting your fellowship as we move toward enjoying the Lord's Supper together? That's a great time to ask that question. Do you know him today? Is anything interrupting that fellowship? We have open communion here. You don't have to be a member. We just ask that you be a baptized, believing Christian. You put your trust in Jesus. You can open the top clear layer and take out the wafer. I love Luke 22. It's, it, in the passage where he institutes the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, he actually introduces the, the cup first and then the bread. So I'll do it out of, out of scriptural order, but one of my favorite verses in all the Bibles in Luke twenty-two fifteen. you know what Jesus says there? I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He wanted to celebrate their freedom by instituting a greater freedom. Israel was cut loose from slavery, but God wants to cut us loose from sin. Cut us loose from Satan. And cut us loose from the wrath of God. So the Bible says he had the Passover bread, the bread to celebrate being set free says he took it and he broke it. You know why he broke it? He broke it for two reasons. To symbolize he would be broken and to share it. He's broken to be. He broke it and he gave thanks. He tells them every time, every time y'all have this celebration, do it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for the body of Jesus. Broken, broken as the wrath was poured out on him. Broken in my place, broken as a substitution. Father, we thank you for the body of Jesus. In Christ we pray, amen. And in Luke 22, we also get another cool element of the institution of the Lord's Supper that we don't get in Matthew. It says he took this cup and he says, divide it among yourselves. Isn't that neat? Everybody's getting the same wine. Isn't that awesome? Everybody's getting the same wine. Some of you guys will remember the parable of Jesus changing the water into wine. Some people come to the party first, or, you know, the party starts out and everybody's getting that good wine. No boons form, only good wine. But everybody's been partying and having a good time, and all the good wine is, matter of fact, all the wine was gone. They come to Jesus. Jesus, do something about this. So he does. He turns water into wine. They take that newly miracle wine out into the party. People say, yo, 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 what's good? Why did y'all save the bad wine, I mean the good wine for later in the party? What's up with that? 
what's awesome about Jesus is take this cup and divide it. Whether you became a believer in 33 AD or in 2020, we all drank the same cup. We all get the same wine. That blood is good for every sinner. This is no trick. Whether you're a latecomer or a first-timer, you're an old-timer, or you just got to the party, he says, divide this cup. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses the sins of the elect, that causes your wrath to be lifted from us, and it pays the debt that holds our shame. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. Through Christ we pray. Amen. What I'd say in closing about Ecclesiastes is there's a way to enjoy life. And the only way you'll discover it, the only way I'll discover it is by walking with Jesus. Andrew, would you come and lead us in a song?